This is God's word. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man, every one a chief among them. So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran, according to the command of the Lord, all of them, men who were the heads of the people of Israel. And then jump down to verse 25. The spies are returning home. At the end of the 40 days, they returned from spying out the land. And they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the desert wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told them, we came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However... The people who dwell there in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites dwell in the hill country, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had been spying out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who came from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. This is God's Word. You know, I think, um, you know, if you're a a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, there is this, this gap, I'll call it, in our lives. A gap between what we say we believe on one hand and how we live our lives on another. And they don't always, aren't always the same. Some may call that hypocrisy. I think that's a little harsh in this instance. I'm not talking about the purposeful, malicious hypocrite who pretends they're somebody that they're not, pretending they're better than they really are, usually accompanied with a sense of self-righteousness or scolding. I'm not talking about that kind of gap. I'm talking about the kind of gap where I believe one thing, I believe what God says about me in Christ, I believe what God says about my salvation, but that doesn't always match up with how I live every day and how I run the details of my life. For instance, most of us, if you're a Christian, probably believe that Jesus is currently on his throne in heaven and he's currently at work. But we don't share the gospel with our co-workers. We struggle with loving our neighbors, even though we've become an object of God's eternal love in Christ. We're fearful. We'd rather make sure our children like us than to discipline them. We argue with our spouse, trying to get the edge on the next conversation, even though we're united to a Savior who undressed himself and humbled himself in the form 
of a servant. Servanthood's just out of our mind most of the time. Those are the kind of gaps that I'm talking about. The kind of gaps that exist between who we say we are, the things that we believe that God has done for us in Jesus Christ, and the way we live our everyday lives. I remember um, before we came here, we were talking to um, some churches about planting a church in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Now, Ann Arbor is the home of the University of Michigan. If you're unfamiliar with it, it's one of the most liberal and progressive towns in the United States, often referred to as Little Manhattan because of how progressive it is. And I, I remember meeting with a group of pastors. This is indelibly planted, etched in my mind. A group of pla- pastors talking about the need to plant a church in Ann Arbor. And their response to a man was, you're welcome to do it, but we don't think it's going to take off and you're going to succeed. And the reasoning was because Ann Arbor is just too liberal, uh, progressive, too radical of a town. As if the unbelief of a radical is just as, is more difficult to get over for God than the unbelief of someone who would call themselves a conservative. God comes into the lives, Jesus comes into the lives of both. But, you know, the reason I bring that, that up is because I want you to see that gap exists for pastors too. We wrestle with whether God is at work. And the gap of unbelief is what Moses is dealing with here in Numbers chapter 13. God had made tremendous promises to the people of Israel, to Abraham's descendants. He had told Abraham when Abraham was without children that your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. In fact, at this point in Israel's history, they're numbering two to three million people. God had kept their promise. He told them that I will give you the land of Canaan as your inheritance. You will possess it while Abraham was without even a burial plot. And he described this land as flowing with milk and honey while Abraham was just a sojourner, a traveler. And now after 400 years of waiting, Israel was on the verge of entering into the promised land. But they too were having trouble with the gap. They were having trouble seeing as God saw reality. Even after seeing God destroy the greatest army on the face of the earth, even as He brought the waters of judgment over the Egyptian army and brought them down, still struggling with unbelief. That's what that gap is between what God has promised and how we live our lives. That gap is the gap of unbelief. Even after Israel saw God visibly leading them with a pillar of fire by night and cloud by day, even as He descended and met with Moses as a man meets face to face with a friend, they're still experiencing unbelief. I want to say two points this morning as we go at this in chapter 13. The first thing I want us to see is that unbelief really is the sin underneath the sin in most of our lives. Then the second thing I want us to see is that taking God at His word actually exposes us. It's a dangerous thing. It feels dangerous to genuinely trust God as He leads us. Okay, so first, unbelief is the sin underneath the sin. Here's why I say that. Chapter 13 and 14 actually go together as one unit in the original Hebrew. 
We're going to break them apart this week and next week to look at them separately, but they really are one unit. And this one unit of verse is chapter 13 and 14 actually repeats the previous chapters of 11 and 12 with this pattern. It's a, actually, it's a progression. Cycles of unbelief and rebellion occur. In chapter 11, Israel is in rebellion against, sorry, grumbles against God because they don't like the way he has provided for them. So their grumbling and unbelief leads to, chapter 12, outright rebellion against God's leadership. Here again, in Numbers chapter 13, the unbelief of the people of Israel lead, in verse 14, to the outright rebellion of God's people against him and against his promises and against his leadership. And this is the pattern that we pick up in these chapters. Unbelief leads to sin. In chapter 13, the Israelites, they've come to the boundary here in the desert of Paran. We're told in the city of Kadesh. This was a large oasis literally in the middle of the desert. God had led them here. They're right on the southern border of Canaan. And then from Kadesh, God tells Moses in the opening verses to send spies into the land to scout it out. Each tribe of the twelve tribes of Israel were to get a spy to point him to go with the other spies to scout out the land as a recognizance mission. And they're to survey it. Is it all that God promised it would be? Is it a land fertile, a rich land, a land that's described as flowing with milk and honey? And at the end of 40 days, the spies return home. And they return home with a large clump of grapes on a pole, pomegranates, figs, and a report that, in fact, the land was as God had promised, a land flowing with milk and honey. But, 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 not a good word sometimes unless it is Unless it's followed by this, but God, that's always good. You know, this is what the way the gospel works. You are lost in your sin, but God who is rich in mercy, that's always a good but. That's not a good thing, though, when it shows up on the lips of men. Look at the report in verse 28. They brought back all this produce from the land, these fruits, and this is what they say, however... We came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, however, the people who dwell in that land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides that, we saw the Canaan. We saw the descendants of Anak there. In other words, Canaan is full of large cities. Those cities have large walls, and there's large people everywhere. And a division is actually created at this point between the ten spies who report back however and Caleb and Joshua who argue at once that they are to move into the land and occupy it. Notice too that while the division is over the outcome and the next steps that Israel should take, there's no division over the report of the spies. They just disagree on how they should respond in light of God's promises. Maybe we can say it this way. The spies want to act, the, the descending spies want to act on what they see with their eyes. But the 
spies of Joshua and Caleb want to act based on what they have heard with their ears in the promises of God. Listen to this quote. This is how grumbling and unbelief really cause a shipwreck of our faith. There's a quote from one of the scholars on the book of Numbers. It was just too good not to quote. And he says this as an observation. Grumbling distorts your vision. It reimagines the past as a golden land. You'll remember we saw Israel when they were tired of eating manna saying, hey, we had cucumbers in, back in Egypt and it didn't cost us anything. As he says, this is what unbelief does. It reimagines the past as a golden land. It despises the good gifts that God has currently surrounded you with. And it completely ignores God's promises for the future. That's why I say that the root of grumbling is unbelief. Grumbling is an unbelief that robs you of your joy. It's the exact opposite of faith. Faith sees the past, the present with clear eyes, and it has its gaze joyfully fixed on God's promises for the future. Faith believes God's promises to be certain, no matter what the difficulties may hold. And these are the eyes of faith that that Caleb has. He sees reality based not upon what his eyes perceive, but on what God has promised. And as a result, he interprets what his eyes has seen in light of what God has promised and said, sure, you are right. That's a large cities with large walls and large peoples, but, but God has promised us that land. Therefore, at once we need to go up and occupy it. And then look at verse 32. These are the dissenting spies. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report. This is what the other ten did of the land that they had spied out. Notice what they said this time. The first time they give their report, they say, We came to the land. This is verse 27. It was flowing with milk and honey. Jump down to verse 32. Now the land is a land that devours in its inhabitants, and all the people we saw in it are of great height. That distorted lens of unbelief distorts reality for them. And instead of seeing an opportunity for God's faithfulness, they see an opportunity for self-preservation. Unbelief leads to sin, which leads to faithlessness. Taking God at His word always feels dangerous, but leads to productive, fruitful living. Fear is something that you and I have to live with. If you're a Christian, fear is something you've got to learn to live with because God is not a God who can be put down into our molds. He's going to require more of you can, that you can handle. He's going to push you to the limit. You know that saying, God is always going to put us in situations where we can't handle ourselves and our circumstances. There's a promise He's made. You know that saying, God's never going to give you more than you can handle? You've heard that, probably maybe said it on your lips. God's never going to give you more than you're capable of. And if you're in the midst of a difficult time, these are offered as words of comfort. You know, don't, don't give in. God's only put so much on you that you can handle. Don't believe that. That's a lie. 
This is the promise of the Scripture. God saying, I'm going to put more on you that you can handle. Because I want you to leave your self-trust behind. And I want you to trust yourself to my care. And you won't do it until you despair of your own strength. The promises He makes are actually sweeter. The promises that He makes to us is that we, with our eyes set firmly on His promises, will persevere and thrive in the midst of hardships. That's why faith feels dangerous. It always feels dangerous to trust God. Even with the most minute details of life, to trust God for my daily bread, most basic need of life. After a while, that can feel very dangerous. When you've lost your job, when it's the end of the pay period and you don't, you're looking at your grocery budget and you've got no money left and you've got no food in the pantry and you're making ramen noodles and lots of rice. Those are dangerous times. It feels dangerous to trust God to provide daily bread. But you see, sometimes, oftentimes, He takes us into those kind of situations so that we will despair of our own strength and trust in Him. And this is exactly what's going on with the spies. The spies are being challenged as they go into the land and they see a strong people there, as they see strong cities there, as they see those who are beyond their ability, they're despairing of themselves. One set of spies says, let's run away from this. And one set of spies says, let's run into this. I think really this helps us to get at and get to the cross. As I was thinking about this this week, I thought... You know, these spies, Caleb and Joshua, really are pointing us forward to the Lord Jesus Christ who looked at the wrath of God that He would bear on the cross and marched forward into that with the promise that He would be raised from the dead. He frequently told His disciples both things. I will die and then I'll be raised. He was aware that death would not have its final hold on him. He was confident that God would raise him, his father would raise him from the dead. He was confident of the Spirit's ability to give him perseverance through his trial and crucifixion. But he still was afraid. He wrestled to believe those promises. You see him, even in his weakness, crying to his disciples, Will you not please... Pray with me. The hour is near. And even as he marched closer to the cross, his anxiety grew so deep that he sweated blood. You see, these spies didn't know what they were entering into. They were unaware of the promised land until they were actually in the middle of it. Not so with the Lord Jesus. With Jesus being the eternal God, he knew the wrath of God that he would bear for the sins of the world. He didn't go in blind. He went in and wide-eyed. And he did so charging forward, trusting God's promises. And he earned our great salvation. I and mean, before we ever see 
Caleb and Joshua as models of how we should live our lives. We need to see Caleb and Joshua as models, as types, as shadows pointing us forward to the Lord Jesus. But now, his cross kind of gives us new perspective in which we can walk because we have a certain level of confidence. God had promised that he would take care of the sins of his people and he did so at the cross. And when Jesus was raised, he was raised victorious. And we with him. That should give us a different lens to interpret reality through. Seeing God being faithful with our greatest need. Do you remember... That toast toy, it was a toy that you had as a kid. It had red glasses and a piece of paper that was just covered with red ink. And you couldn't really tell. It didn't look like there was any type of message or picture on the paper until you put those red glasses on. And those red glasses gave you a different perspective. They helped to sort out reality. And you'd see all of a sudden words jumped off the page at you. You got rid of the clutter. And it's the way the gospel works in our lives. It gets rid of the clutter so that we can focus in on where our security, our hope comes from. It comes from the death of our Savior in our place. This is why trusting God's promises, Caleb and Joshua were so confident that they could move forward. But how much more then should our confidence be? You see their report at once. We should move at once without delay. It's a reckless abandon that's good for those who are followers of Jesus Christ. This is what faith does. How it confronts unbelief. It's just stead on. Faith believes in the things that are not yet real and lives as if they were the most real things around. Gospel crazed people, people who have been had their lives turned upside down by the gospel, live with a kind of confidence that is risky and bold and secure, especially when it comes to ministry. In the most basic struggle that we face on a daily basis is the struggle of self-preservation and pride. And faith comes right in and says to that, this is what God has promised, live in light of it. It believes the things that are not yet real and lives as if they were the most real things around. And I love Jesus in Matthew chapter 10 when he says... Whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. That is a threat. Unless you're so rooted in the gospel that you're finding it compelling you to move forward in a self-sacrificing kind of way. And if you hear that and are struggling and say, I don't live my life that way, then go before the throne of grace with the promises of God in your hand and say to the Father, would you make me more like your Son, willing to risk it all. And Jesus isn't just talking about grand, visible, big kind of displays of faith. He's not talking about the kind of things that would get you noticed in the newspaper. He's talking about normal, everyday life. I should say that differently. He's not 
only talking about the kind of things that should get you in the paper. He's talking about normal, everyday life. If anyone would come after me, Luke chapter 9, same saying with one addition. Let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Follow you where? Husbands and wives, there are areas in your marriage that you have been too afraid to venture into. You have been too afraid because you know it's going to get messy and there's so much baggage and frustration and hurt that it is unimaginable that God would actually enter into that marriage, those contexts, and be at work. And I want you to hear Jesus saying to you, I will go before you. Whenever I do marriage counseling, we always start with reading the promises of God in the prophet Isaiah that he's going to make the desert come to life with flowers. That's what any of our marriages need. We need God to be at work so then we can be at work and as a result see him produce flowers in the desert. It's kind of everyday normal obedience that he's calling us into. Maybe it's you know, sharing the gospel with a friend. God's opened the door for you. Maybe it's a co-worker that you have been building a relationship with for a long time, but you think about that person. That's the last person Jesus is going to get into his kingdom. And I want you to say, when you think that, next time I want you to say, God, I repent of my unbelief. That person is just as close to coming into your kingdom as I was when I was without Christ. Unless the Spirit moves, there's no hope that he or she will come into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. But if the Spirit moves, you can be confident of this, he or she will come to faith in Jesus Christ. You see the power of God on display in those type of contexts. I think I've realized, I'm realizing in my life, one of the things that God just keeps showing me over and over again, two areas, how deep my love of people's opinion of me is and how deep my love of comfort is. At least a half a dozen times, even this week, there was conversations that I needed to have that I thought would be unproductive and I didn't know how to get into it. It was going to be awkward. And the Spirit looked me in the eye and says, Paul, that is unbelief. Phone calls made, very profitable conversations. Phone calls, other phone calls needed to be made. I I realized I was staying away from it. I was putting it off day by day by day and now it had gone months. Made the phone call. Still waiting to see. Was that one as profitable as the other? But in the heart of that, the thing that God is doing in my life over and over and over again was challenging my unbelief. Exposing it and bringing it into His presence. Saying to me, you can trust me. I am at work. This isn't a whole world filled with desert. This is a place that I am 
as Jesus says in the book of Revelation, making all things new. And so God is at work, and so we need to be at work in ministry, in hard conversations, in working on our marriages, in parenting our children, in doing the work of the church, in reaching our neighbor. God is at work. We need to be at work. Let's pray. Father, as your beloved people, we confess to you that your love is not the place where we rest. Your power is not the place that we rest as often as we need. Forgive us for our grumbling unbelief and the ways that has led to self-preservation and self-preservation has led to greater sins. Give us reckless abandon to follow the one who had no place to lay his head, the one who was dependent upon you from birth to grave. We want to know more of that kind of power and intimacy in our lives. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.